0: Welcome to Wyoming, also known as a small town with long streets. It's my 307. My name is Carla Mowell, and when I was little, I always had my nose in a book. I got that love of reading from my dad who grew up here. He had some turns of phrase that I've always been curious about, and today's episode helped me learn so much about language use here in Wyoming. I live in the Bighorn Basin area. It's a 100-mile valley surrounded by mountain ranges where you'll hear people talk about the mountain when actually they're referring to the Bighorn Mountains. People also say the park, meaning Yellowstone. I find that shorthand really interesting. It's what linguists call a synecdoche, which I just learned how to pronounce. Today's episode is about words and phrases that are very much Wyoming. And we're so lucky to dig into this topic with none other than Grant Barrett. He's co host of NPR's Away with Words. Let's have a listen to that conversation. Well, welcome, Grant Barrett. Welcome to Wyoming, my 307.
1: Thank you very much, Carla. It's a delight to be here.
0: I'm a huge fan of your show on NPR that you host with Martha Barrett, Away With Words. Um, And I'm just so delighted to have you here today because I've been collecting these Wyoming words and phrases for a while now, and I'm super curious to hear what you can tell us about them.
1: Oh, what a delight. I'm happy to be here talking about that.
0: (laughs) Well, my dad, who was from Wyoming, he was the source for some of these terms and really hearing him say some of these things was what has piqued my curiosity for a long time. And his highest compliment was to call somebody a good hand. And I always thought that was an oil field term because, you know, that's that's what he was in the oil field, and that's what he was referring to. But now that I live in Wyoming, I've heard it really widely used here. Is that something you've heard?
1: So he would talk about an oil hand, maybe.
0: Well, he would just say to, about a person, he'd say, he's really a good hand.
1: So, just meaning a good guy, someone you could trust, or uh, someone you could uh, loan your truck to and get it back uh, filled with gas and taken to be washed or something. But, yeah, it was
0: kind of like an all around good person, but it yeah. also meant just a hard worker. And hard okay. work is really admired here. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think that's true for a lot of places. Now, appreciating hard work is, of course, a universal trait among humans. And the idea of referring to somebody as uh, just a hand, somebody who does manual labor goes back to the 1500s. And you will find a hand being used that way among sailors, among, of course, cattle uh, ranchers. A ranch hand, of course, is a really common one. But there's a, a language term I want to throw in here, synecdoche, if you've heard that, and this is where... Part of something stands in for the whole, so hand, which is you have on the end of your arms, stands in for the whole body. so when we talk about hands we 're talking about what they 're working with, but we 're referring to the person and we do this in other ways. Um, we talk about forty head of cattle we're not really we don 't really care only about the cattle that 's how we count them, but we mean the whole animal. Or you might say Denver lost by a field goal. We don't mean the city of Denver. Denver is standing in for the team, right? And you can find good hands talked about among sailors as far back as the 1700s. Good hands were hard to come by. So no doubt good hands were always wanted anywhere. Hard work was needing to be done. Well,
0: Tell me that word you used again, synecdoche or something like that. Oh, yeah.
1: Synecdoche. It's a strange spelling. S-Y-N-E-C-D-O-C-H-E. Synecdoche.
0: Oh, my it's gosh. Been... I've been misspelling. I mean, mis- <laughs> mispronouncing it my whole life.
1: Oh, I had which... to practice that one for years. Synecdoche. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> English is funny like that. There's all sorts oh, English of is,
1: English is weird.
0: English It'll is hard every time. Well, another term that my dad used was outfit, which I knew did not mean a new set of clothes. Like if he said mm-hmm. you need a new outfit, it probably meant like you need a new car or you need to start working for a different company. Or, you know, if somebody get, gets a new job, he would say, Oh, they joined a new outfit.
1: Yeah. I like that term. I use that too. I often talk about the radio show that I do with Martha being a small outfit because we're kind of up against the big boys. Uh, while we are on NPR stations, we're not a part of NPR, so it's kind of confusing to people to talk, you know, when we talk about being in this small outfit of just, a, you know, four people making this national show, they're confused. And this is another one of those terms that goes back, like, 400 years to the 1600s, there was a thing, that, and again, sailing comes up again, I don't know why so many of these terms go back to sailing, but there was a term that they had which meant to rig a ship with all its gear, material size, and so forth, and it was to fit out. Inverting that verb phrase, to fit out, you get outfit, and it dates as the noun form, the noun meaning the act of outfitting dates to the 1700s. And so by the end of that century, the end of the 1700s, it began to refer to the supplies and equipment. And then easing into the 1800s, it started to mean the clothes. And we still have that meaning today, you know, an outfit. But it's particularly meant specialized clothes, like the clothes that you would need for a job, like sailors wore these kind of clothes and mine workers wore these kind of clothes. And then this is where it kind of gets to what we're talking about in your language it became to refer to any group of people that was equipped or outfitted in that way. So they were recognizable as a group because of the way that they were equipped or the way that they were outfitted. And so their appearance and their behavior and the things that they did made them an outfit and so before long it was simplified so the outfit came to mean uh, any group of people who operated together the two out- you kind of were talking about two outfits so one is a group of people uh, that who do a thing together and another one is like the the things that you have around you that um represent who you are and what you do
0: well and there's another term that when i've lived in other parts of the country i haven't heard as much and that's outfitters so here you know if you're if you're coming to wyoming and you want to go fly fishing and you haven't had any experience you might go to an outfitter who will take you and guide you and you know give you the gear or lend you the right. gear yeah, yeah so they'll, it it's they'll still tell you
1: fits what's right for the kind of wildlife that are in the area right? You know, right
0: the... yeah yeah outfitters Well, I don't know about you guys, but we've been getting some much needed rain this spring. Whereas here, you know, we're watching to make sure there's enough snow. And if there's rain, that's just extra because snow is what gives us our water here. The snow melt. Yeah. So if it hadn't rained that much, then you would hear people talking about how droughty it is. Not droughty, droughty. And that just, I don't know, where is that pronunciation from?
1: Yeah, the pronunciation goes back 400 years. Actually, it it has existed in English as long as the drought pronunciation has. Drought and droughty both have always been in English as far back as the written record goes. It just sounds so old-fashioned
0: to me now, you know? Yeah, it
1: is a little old-fashioned. It's kind of fading and losing out to drought, but it's always been there, and it shows up in the written record repeatedly and continuously. And that dialect pronunciation persists because of our connection, of course, to the English dialects. Um, And it's sprinkled throughout the U.S. and isn't common particularly to any one region or place. And it's common enough that throughout the last 50 years or so, some language authorities have said that drought, D-R-O-U-T-H, is also a standard form, along with drought, D-R-O-U-G-H-T. So, Hmm. and... um, it's, so it's it's ordinary, although I've seen some people say, oh yeah, that's that's a mispronunciation. That's like saying height instead of height. Right. It isn't a mispronunciation, it's a dialect form. Hmm. Um, in Scotland, by the way, droughty has meant thirsty, so it's an extended form of the word.
0: Interesting, because the ground is thirsty when it's droughty.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. The plants are thirsty, the animals are thirsty.
0: Right. Well, we put in a small garden this year, so we're really glad for the rain, and before putting in the seeds... Uh, We talked about the ground needing to be chousted, which mm-hmm. I haven't heard that term anywhere else, but it just means kind of mean like, to
1: you? What is it, it means
0: just like t- tilling it up, like breaking, breaking up the soil, kind of mixing yeah. things around, you know, because ap- the winter kind of packs it down.
1: Right.
0: And then you got to break it back up again.
1: That's that's um. That's the. Uh, it's an unusual, not unknown, but an unusual spelling and pronunciation of a word that's usually given as chouse, c h o u s e or c h o w s e. And there's two different meanings to this. One is to harass or knock about or disturb, which is the meaning that you're using. But the right. other one is to to drive cattle around and hmm. so the meaning that you're using actually comes from the cattle meaning so it started as a meaning to, to drive cattle but it became specialized in, to mean to drive cattle in a disturbing way or to harry them or to annoy them or to drive them so that they lost a lot of weight and so you can find chouse back as far as the 1890s and chousing was a, not something a good cattle hand would do
0: kind of hassling yeah. the cows
1: Absolutely, it's just it was considered like some some people are mean at heart, and they just would kind of assert their power too much over the cattle, and kind of take malicious delight in doing more than the job required when it came to herding the cattle around.
0: And that's so important because, especially back in the day when they were actually trail rode all the way to their destination, you know, you're losing money the more they're the more they're hassled and thinned.
1: Yeah, They lose weight and also the become stringy, right? Right. It's just not as good. Right. Not as much fat there.
0: So we're making really nice level and even rows back to the garden because Mm. if you do them all different, then that would be considered slanch-wise and that's not good.
1: (laughs) You have that when you say slanch-wise? Yes. (laughs) And what does that mean to you?
0: Just kind of like unlevel or diagonal, just not, you know... Meticulously well done.
1: <laughs> Do you have any other words in your idiolect for uh, crooked or wobbly?
0: I mean, I always words. say wonky, but that's I think wonky that's me.
1: <laughs> yeah, the reason I ask is because for some reason in American English, there are a ton of these, and it's one of the most common questions we get on the radio show. Uh, people call away with words all the time from around the country to ask about a word. And sometimes they're convinced that only their family says it, but there are just so many. Right. Can I can I read you this list that I prepared for? Of this course. All right, yeah. Here we go. This is just a few of them. Kitty cornered. Caddy cornered. Catawampus. Catty wampus. Kittering. Kitter corner. Skewjeeed. Squeejawed. <laughs> Sky goggling, Anti goggling, Anti godlin. Anti gadlin. Sigh anti godlin. Sigh godlin. Sky wampus. Slantindicular. One of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Wompy jawed, whopper jawed, and, and there are probably some other ones I'm forgetting. <laughs> That's just a few of them. Slant and Dicular is a really good one.
0: <laughs> a lot of them seem to be like compound words.
1: Yeah, there was this trend in the 1800s just to invent really long, ridiculous uh, kind of fake Latin words. And I think a few of them came out of that. They're not real Latin, but they kind of sound like they are. Right. Yeah, but slanch (laughs) itself um, has a bunch of variants. It's slanchway, 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 slanch, slanching, and um, you can find it back as far as the 1830s. Its origin is unknown, but it's used uh, throughout the U.S. and it goes back to English dialect use.
0: And does slanch itself have a meaning?
1: Uh, It's probably related to slant.
0: Kind of like a funny way of saying slant
1: yeah probably yeah that's easily the c h and the t easily can become each other um through normal language change
0: yeah that's just fascinating to me how language changes over time, but also within a family, within a region, you know
1: but the thing is the language change is usually consistent. this is one of the reasons that we can reconstruct ancient languages, we can make educated guesses because the human mouth tends to modify sounds in the same ways over time.
0: Just like dropping syllables or letters or...
1: Well, well, the best example is voiced sounds becoming unvoiced sounds and vice versa. For example, a fa is an unvoiced version of a V, right? Mm -hmm. And so they can easily become each other just by simply turning the vocal cords on and off. And so we, we can then look, for example, a lot of the words for father... Are entered in throughout all the in- Indo European languages are the sounds of P, B, F, and V swapping around, and they're all made with the lips. So that's
0: amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm really enjoying the summer because winter in Wyoming is very serious business. <laughs> I,
1: don't, I don't know what you mean. I'm in San Diego. I have no idea <laughs> yeah. what you're talking about. Well, isn't, isn't, isn't winter 70 degrees and sunny?
0: <laughs> no, no, Grant, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it is sunny, though. It is sunny. <laughs> <laughs> but we're equipped because, for example, good thing I have a nice warm sugen. Do you know what oh, that is?
1: What a lovely word, <laughs> when you think about all the comfort that it brings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's yours look like? Do you have one that's uh, kind of felty with the zigzag pattern on it?
0: Um, It's basically just like a really, it's a square blanket. It's just yeah, like a quilted yeah. kind of all-purpose blanket.
1: Oh, that reminds me of a funny line I saw in one of my dictionaries. <laughs> it says the sugan was generally cut square, and many a logger almost went crazy switching it around and around <laughs> in a dark bunkhouse trying to find the long end. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's like just get longer. under it. Don't worry about the long end. The <laughs> <laughs> <No> long
1: end. <laughs> Uh, supposedly, it comes from Irish and Scottish Gaelic words, meaning a twisted straw or haul rope. Um, similar words were also applied to a saddle or horse coverlet, like a small blanket made out of straw. And this may wear, be where it went from being, you know, something used for a horse saddle to cover a horse's back to something you sleep on, because of course you might use your saddle for sleeping, but not only because it could be... Sometimes more comfortable at night, but also because it was harder for made it hard for someone to steal your your writing equipment. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times that's why you sleep on it, not because it's more comfortable, because it would still be there in the morning. I would have thought uh, it
0: was French for some reason. It looks French to me.
1: Yeah, even the Irish and Scottish Gaelic origin is a little iffy. There's just one one mentioned in an old text with this meaning of being a saddle and a horse coverlet. And all of the dictionaries that say it's from Irish and Scottish Gaelic, every single one of them trace back to the single mention Hmm. in this one dictionary. But it's it's a solid guess. I mean, obviously, the Irish and Scottish influence on the North American English, both in Canada and the U.S., is vast and deep. It's a rich heritage that has been left. So why not?
0: Well, in the winter, of course, a lot of folks around here leave. They go to, you know, warmer climates. And yes, and one of their great (laughs) joys is to call their friends here in Wyoming and ask, How's the weather in Wyoming? You know, rubbing (laughs) it in. (laughs) And the best answer I've heard is, Well, it's clear and still, clear up to your ass and still snowing. You do it by postcard because then they can't reply really fast. <laughs> Right. <laughs>
1: you can find it in newspapers, usually not with the word ask, because that's usually what right. in newspapers, but you'll find it up to your butt, chin, neck, eyes, knees. Um, I found it in newspapers back to 1960, but I know it's much older than that. Um, That's a great
0: one. Yeah. Well, the next phrase is definitely one that I got from my dad. He and my mom lived in Louisiana, but, you know, would come to Wyoming for the summers, basically. And we'd always talk about, like, what what route he would take. He might say, this year, I'm just going to ride the grub line. The way he said it, I knew, oh, he's going to, they're going to visit friends along the way and stay like a couple of days in Kansas city with their friend and then a couple of days in Nebraska with their friend. But I didn't realize that that's actually a more of of like a cowboy term. I just thought that was my dad, you know, being funny.
1: Oh yeah. Ride the grapple, or sometimes ride the bag line or ride the chuck line.
0: Chuck wagon. That's such a Western term.
1: uh, It's in all of the Western language and cowboy language dictionaries and glossaries and old books. And you find it in those old tales were kind of written for the Eastern newspapers, these completely made-up stories. Right. Um, I like the term, and it's clear when you look in the stories tro- told by the true Westerners and the real cowboys that there were two two kinds of grub line writers. There was the guy who was really just looking to do real work and just looking for a meal and an uh, honest fellow, and then there was the guy who couldn't settle down and he was a ne'er-do-well and uh, oh. he was riding the grub line all year long and he might actually run off with some of your tools too, you know. Right. Um, or he might not do the work and take the meal, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's, when I when I looked into that phrase, I just thought it was interesting because you don't think about how different ranch and cowboying work over the span of the year.
1: Yeah, you know, it's boom and bust, isn't it?
0: Right. So there's a lot of work in the summer, and then there's like lambing and, you know, stuff in the spring. But the winter, I mean, you got to make yourself useful if you're going to not go hungry.
1: Right. Yeah. You're supposed to save up your money in the boom times and not spend it on drink and gambling. <laughs> gambling. Yeah. yeah. Don't go down yeah. to the casino. Nope.
0: Nope. Well, one term that I heard actually on, on your show, and then I, I asked folks around here if they'd heard it, and so many mm-hmm. people said yes, and that was a jockey box.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Meaning you get a, a lot of yeses?
0: Yeah, I did get quite a few yeses, which, you know, I was surprised because I hadn't really heard it, so I feel like that's one of those terms that people have heard maybe an older generation mm-hmm. say because it was familiar to them, but I, I hadn't really heard it that much.
1: And they said that they say it themselves to mean glove box.
0: Right. Or that they knew that that was a glove box.
1: Okay, good. Yeah. um, And do you know that there's another current use of jockey box. Sometimes people use it to refer to the box on a truck, particularly a large truck, maybe not a pickup, but more like a utility truck. It's on the side of the truck below the bed, but between the wheel wells, kind Mm -hmm. kind of on the side. Sometimes people call that a jockey box, too.
0: And what does it refer back to?
1: Well, you know the story. You tell me. Yes. You looked into it.
0: Well, um, from what I remember from your show, it, it comes from the wagon times. Yeah, wagon times. And mm-hmm. so whoever would be sitting, um, driving the wagon would be the jockey. And that box under that seat, that person's seat, was called the jockey box. Is that uh, correct? He
1: might put, yeah, that's why he, he might put his hat or you know his extra extra tools and his lunch and his valuables, uh, whatever else. Anything that he didn't need at the moment so that it didn't bounce away.
0: Yeah, like a jacket for later or whatever. Yeah,
1: just anything might go in there. He might put things in there for uh, other passengers, that sort of thing.
0: And then when when we had cars, then that became the glove box. Because even glove box is an anachronism. Nobody keeps their gloves in it.
1: <laughs> they don't, and you know the British and English. Maybe we talked about this on the radio show. The British and American difference of what we call the trunk of a car, the British boot
0: comes right. also
1: from horse days, horse and wagon days, because the box that was on a wagon where they stepped with their boots to climb in was called the boot.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: So it just tra- it just moved to the back of the vehicle.
0: And then trunk, you know, that's that's old where, fashioned,
1: basically where, it's where you strapped the trunk, and literally right. it, it became a trunk that was always on the vehicle rather than a place where you temporarily strapped a trunk. Yeah, one of the interesting things is when you look at the divergent Englishes in the world, they diverged the most when each of these English-speaking countries was developing these new technologies on their own. Like automobiles were developed in each of these places independently. But now that these new technologies are being developed and released at the same time in all these countries, we all have the same language for computers, for example, for the most part in the English-speaking world. And the automobiles, it wasn't like that. They weren't one automobile wasn't launched to the whole world at the same time, like computers are. So that's right. why we don't have different words for computers in the U.K. and the U.S. and so forth. All right, so where else are we? What else we got going on here?
0: Well, if I traveled somewhere that I'd never seen, even if it was just 20 miles down the road Mm -hmm. I might say, this is new country to me.
1: Well, I don't know if that's lexicalized. By lexicalized, I mean that it's a phrase that kind of stands out as almost a near idiom. I do know that country to refer to any particular land or terrain dates back to about the 1300s. So um, I could see anyone saying new country.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just had a couple staying at my Airbnb from Gillette. And they said, yeah, I mean, we've lived in Wyoming our whole life, but we've never seen this country.
1: Oh, interesting. Nice. Yeah. I wonder if that's common throughout the West. You know what? I'm hoping you'll get some response in your podcast and you can send me some of that. I can find out more about that because it wasn't something that I was able to dig up much more on, but Mm -hmm. I'll get educated quick if if they'll clue me in.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm sure you know cattle is very big business in Wyoming and you have to brand your calves. Um, Because if you don't brand your calves, then a rustler could steal them and put their own brand on that, which that's what the cattle wars were about, which I'm going to do an episode about. And those unbranded animals are called mavericks or slicks, which that was new to me. I thought maverick just meant, you know, like I associate that with John McCain, like somebody who thinks for themselves and doesn't just follow, you know, what everyone else is doing.
1: It's an eponym from Sam Maverick, who uh, decided in Texas in the 1800s that he would send out his ranch hands just to claim, and this is before barbed wire and fences, that uh, he wouldn't brand his cattle. And then when it came time to do the roundup, that his ranch hands would just claim any cattle that were unbranded as his.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So clever.
1: Including, you know, all the newborns. Oh, that's a nice way to expand your herd real fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that's literally what the ranch wars were and about. All
1: hell broke out, of course, because people were like, "Well, if the mom is brand, you know, if the if the mother is branded, then the calf is hers, and right. then that calf is mine, whether that calf has a brand or not."
0: Right. And then in reading about the term "slick," I heard that that's actually also a military term that people who don't have, you know, who are just the lowest level.
1: The greenies and the news. yeah,
0: who don't have anything on their you know, any I don't even know what they're called rib, not ribbons, but you know, like the little insignias uh-huh. to show that they're a sergeant or a this or a that. Okay. That they're called slicks, too.
1: I, that sounds about right. I did, I'm not completely familiar with that one, but that sounds exactly right.
0: Yeah, the military is just an unending resource of terminology as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) I mean, there's so many terms and words that they use. Yeah, I've got a whole stack of
1: dictionaries here about the military.
0: I bet. Well, have you ever heard the verb to dry gulch?
1: Yes, I have heard that one. You know, it's defined a bunch of different ways in all these different dictionaries. It's in quite a few that I checked. And some places just generally say it's to ambush or to kill um, attack or beat or harm someone. Others specifically say it's to throw someone off a cliff or to throw someone in a gulch or leave them for dead. I mm-hmm. um, um, found it as far back as 1876, believe it or not, in the Deadwood, South Dakota Pioneer of uh, Deadwood of all places. Yeah. And, uh, the height of its terribleness when Deadwood was pretty much just like described in the TV show. Uh, I looked at the front page of the Deadwood Pioneer, and it, they borrowed some of the place names and people names for the TV show. It was really interesting to read it and see, like the Bell Union show up there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it's the idea that you, um, you know, you steal somebody's belongings or the cattle and you leave them for dead. You shoot them a couple of times, don't bother to check if they're dead, and you leave them for dead.
0: And there's so many dry gulches that leaving yeah. them for dead in a dry gulch, they might not be found for a couple of years.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, Interesting. Gulch is uh, an interesting word to look at because it's very much a Western word belonging to the Western United States. Gulch is hardly used at all in the Eastern United States. It just doesn't show up. Hmm. So if you were to give me a place name and say, you know, I I give me an address or just a city name and say it was something, something Gulch, I would make a very educated guess that it was west of Denver and probably be right.
0: Yes, I'm sure you would. And gulch is actually kind of a strange word. You know those words that the more you repeat them, the stranger they <laughs> sound?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it definitely
0: is. Well, my last question that I have is kind of a long one. It's about pronunciation. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to share some local pronunciations, and I'm curious to hear your opinion. Are they really sure. that local? Are they regional? My dad always said ambliance instead of ambulance.
1: Ambliance.
0: And I just thought that was just like, okay, dad has a little quirky mispronunciation. But then I heard my aunt say it the same way. And it just got me thinking, like, do you think that's one way that language kind of changes and travels is like just... Mispronunciations become the norm in a family and then they have kids and they mispronounce it.
1: Well, it is a common enough pronunciation of the word to show up in some guides on how not to pronounce English. <laughs> right. I don't I don't know that it's a dialect pronunciation, but that kind of swapping around of sounds is called metathesis, and it does happen pretty frequently in in words of multiple syllables.
0: Ambulance, ambulance. <laughs> And then the word coyote. I'm going to say coyote. That's how they say it in Texas. In Spanish, of course, it's coyote. But here in Wyoming, people say coyote.
1: All right. Here, here's here's a story on that. The theory is that the two-syllable pronunciation of coyote came to early English-speaking settlers directly from the the Mesoamerican language Nahuatl. I'm mispronouncing mm-hmm. that, but N A H A U T L in which the word is spelled C-O-Y-O-T-L. Uh, mm. Something like coyote, something like that. And right. the L is a little liquid there. And that last syllable is not easy to spell or say. So the first pronunciation that was used by Europeans in the New World was very similar to coyote. Huh. Very similar. And that's the oldest and longest. One. As a matter of fact, it shows up um, very early the three-syllable pronunciation comes from increased contact by Europeans with Spanish speakers.
0: That so makes the Spanish sense. Spanish speakers
1: were the ones who then turned into coyote, and then and then the English speakers took that word, the Spanish word, and turned into coyote, and right. that's the reason that most Americans now say coyote. So we got our pronunciation from the Spanish speakers. The Spanish speakers got their pronunciation from kind of their their version of the Navajo word it's kind of a full circle yeah Yeah, but we're talking about the transformation of a word over 500 years right right you got to give people leeway the two syllable pronunciation has been here a really long time and it's an accepted pronunciation in many dictionaries
0: i think it also has to do with like i imagine people from different cultures interacting like in the old west yeah it was all verbal they didn't that's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they weren't writing about coyotes right. or and whatever, or reading about them. It more
1: rapidly when, it's, when it happens ear to mouth, mouth to ear.
0: Well, another pronunciation that's very local here is crick, like shell crick, meaning creek.
1: Yeah, is that what you say?
0: Yeah. Shell crick? Yeah.
1: Do you find yourself correcting yourself?
0: Well, I find myself kind of, like, code switching. <laughs> if I'm here locally with other local folks, I'll say crick. If I'm, you know, in Texas or Louisiana, I'll say Greek.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it's another one of those words that is a heritage pronunciation from when the vowels in English sounded different. And it's been in use in North America since 1608 when a pronunciation spelling of it was used in print by Captain John Smith of Jamestown. This is the John Smith of the yeah. Pocahontas stories. The reason that the creek pronunciation may be less common in New England and the Atlantic seaboard and the American South is that there are lots of other names for that body of water. So creek as a name for a small stream isn't the only word used in the United States. Right. So, for example, um, fork or, or brook right. or branch. Or even prong or mm-hmm. other names for it.
0: Yeah, that's true. In Texas, I hear branch mm-hmm. a yeah, lot. branch is very common in mm-hmm. Texas,
1: yeah. As a matter of fact, if you look at creek, creek actually, the crick pronunciation maps very well to where creek in general is used um, as a name for that body of water. So where people don't say creek, you don't find the creek pronunciation very often at all. Right. So actually, the creek pronunciation is very common, and it's not connected to lack of education, it's not about urban versus rural, and it's geographic. So it's like the very northern and a little bit west. So again, not New England, not the Atlantic seaboard, and not the American South. So it includes a lot of the Great Lakes, a lot of the Midwest, um, mountains, um, northwest, California.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Well, and what you said about creeks, creeks and rivers and, you know, differentiating like there, there are some quote unquote rivers here up on the mountain that are smaller than the creeks. (laughs) And I'm always confused about that. I mean, I guess they get bigger as they come down.
1: That reminds me when I moved, my family moved to California about 11 years ago and people kept talking about canyons. I'm like, where are these canyons? (laughs) And and for, For me being from Missouri and New York, I, I, I always thought canyons were big, but they were just talking like spaces between hills.
0: <laughs> right. And in Wyoming, they but, call those spaces drainages.
1: That's another one. So what they might call a canyon here in California, they would call a hollow, say, in Appalachia. Right. And what in Southern Southern California and in the Southwest, we would call a mesa, you all, and in the northern part of California, might call a butte. Right. And then in the rock, in the Appalachia, and in that, around there, they might call a knob.
0: Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So another word that I've only heard here is boughten.
1: Oh, very good.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it's a variation of store bought, which I just, I just, my heart melts because it like just reminds me of the days when something being store bought meant something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So it's like I don't have time to bake, so I'm bringing boughten cookies.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love that one too. Um, and Martha and I have talked about that on Away with Words. It's um, got about two hundred years history in American English, a little bit more. And you're usually apologetic about it. You're like, "Oh yeah, you know, so and so got sick, or something came up at work, and I, I'm I'm sorry. I'll, I'll I'll make that special cake the next time. But here's something I picked out for you from the store. It's usually with a sigh and apology, right? Um,
0: yeah, or you'll get the question: Are these store bought?
1: Right. But it's interesting. It is regional. It's just used everywhere outside the American South. Yeah, it's not solely western. So you will find it from New England all the way to California, but just outside the American South.
0: The South just has its own its own vibe.
1: Yeah, the South has got a different linguistic heritage. Different people settled there hundreds of year on, years on. This country, its language still shows strong heritage for the migration patterns that were set down in the 1600s and the 1700s and the 1800s. And even though we are a mobile people, a lot of what we say still shows our heritage.
0: I love that. I love that we're not homogenous.
1: Yeah, and it's growing less homogenous. The common myth is that television and the internet are making us all speak alike, and it's not true. As a matter of fact, all of the data gathered by linguists and sociolinguists shows that our dialects are diverging. Hmm. And Although the old dialects might be modifying and disappearing, new dialects are appearing, and they're appearing in strong ways.
0: Well, I have a friend who has since died. She was in her 80s who told me that she's bringing back the wave because like in Wyoming, everybody historically waves to each other when they're driving past each other in a car. (laughs) Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, we did that in Missouri growing up.
0: Yeah, just like lift your hand even. It doesn't have to be the full wave. But I kind of feel like... I want to keep some of these words that we've talked about today in circulation. Like, I don't know if you can be that planful about it. I just love some of those regionalities, you know?
1: I I think you can be intentional about it, Carla. In everyday usage, you drop it into an email or into conversation or when somebody else uses them, you remark that, oh, like that you love it or you repeat it back to them. You know, sometimes you have to hear somebody else say it before you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, program, just I'll to honor
0: that. it, just to yeah. honor it a little bit.
1: Yeah, there's no reason to be ashamed of those or to let them go or to think about them as old fashioned. The new stuff sometimes lacks for me the authenticity, partly because it doesn't have the test of time behind it, right. you know, I don't know if these new words are going to last and be here next year. Is the thing that I've just learned going to be mocked next week on Twitter? I don't <laughs>
0: right. Really know. Like, oh, we're so over that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't really know.
0: Well, before we say goodbye, I wanted to share with you a little bit about a, a Wyoming phrase that I did some research on, because I hadn't actually heard it until recently, but mm-hmm. apparently it's very well known in Wyoming. Powder River Letter Buck.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talked about it on the radio show. Oh,
0: my gosh, I missed it. <laughs>
1: Well, tell I, me what you found
0: out. Well, <clears throat> when I asked about it, they were like, "Well, you know, that just means like get on with it." And I was like, "Okay, I I accept your definition, but why?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and so I did I did some digging, and basically, Powder River is a river in Wyoming. The reason it's called Powder River is because there's really fine sand along the banks of the river, mm-hmm. and it's in a very deserty area. So the whole phrase is a mile wide and a foot deep, too thick to drink and too thin to plow, powder river, letter buck. And so that's referring to the fact that, you know, it is in a very dry and dusty part of Wyoming and it doesn't get very deep. And and because of the thinness of the soil and lack of water, you can't really, you know, agriculture on it either. And the the origin story is that there was a cowboy named Bill Schultz who was on a cattle drive from Riverton to Casper. Either he or whoever was running the outfit told the cowboys to pick their horses carefully because, ooh, they'd be crossing the Powder River, you know? Yeah, this is
1: 1893, right? His name was Missouri Bill Schultz, right? Yes. So,
0: ooh, you're going to be crossing the Powder River, you know, get your... Strongest horses, because of course back then rivers really were something to contend yeah, with. Did, you know,
1: no right, it could be. Yeah. One it could be dry, and next minute it could be death-defying.
0: So they all carefully pick their horses, and of course they just you know trot along across the Powder River because there's not much to it. <laughs> And then once they get to Casper, of course, you know, they're celebrating. And Schultz is mostly celebrating having tricked these other cowboys, these newbies. And so his toast is Powder River, let her buck. (laughs) And I guess that was like it caught people's attention because it actually reached national consciousness in World War II because Wyoming men first started using it kind of as a battle cry for the whole division in the Argonne. And then one the thing World I... World
1: War I, right? Yes,
0: World War One. sorry.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, the 91st division.
0: And even the French soldiers started shouting, Poudre Rivière! <laughs> 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 and then since then, it's been added to the UW fight song, and it's yep. it's just used throughout Wyoming as a way to say, you know, no matter what the obstacles, let's just do this, get this thing done.
1: Yeah, that's the story, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's going to become one of my favorites, actually, because it's be so an cool.
1: Argument. Some of the folks along the Platte River used to swear that originally it was the Platte River that they crossed and not the Powder. Mm. But the, the phrase has been around for 100 years and no change in it now. Well,
0: I've seen the Platte River, and it's a lot more to contend with than the Powder River.
1: <laughs> powder River, though, just, it's either dry or flooded. And right. Season, right, that's yeah. true,
0: that's true. Well, those are the words I've come up with, but I'm going to keep collecting them.
1: Well, this was lovely. I just love digging into all this stuff. And it, Carla, it was a real delight. I wish you the best of luck with the podcast. And uh, anytime you come across something that Wyoming folks say, you send it along to me on the radio show and we'd be delighted to look into it. All right? Oh,
0: I would love that. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Take, take care and have some snow on me. Send it my way and come about January, all right?
0: thank you so so much to grant i'm a huge fan of the show that he co-hosts with martha barnett martha i was a little starstruck and i messed up your name in my conversation with grant please accept my apology before we move on to the dot on the map segment i want to tell you about a new feature i've added to the website it's a link to a wyoming my307 account The Goodreads platform. If you love books, it's a great website for tracking what you read as well as reading book reviews. I'll post a review of any books that I mention on the podcast as well as books that I use for researching pod topics. So if you want to dig even deeper into Words of the West, Grant recommended a really good book which I enjoyed called A Dictionary of the American West by Wynne Blevins, and a shout out to my friend Bill Hayes, who gave me another wonderful book called Wyoming Place Names. I know I'll be using it so much. You can find reviews of both books, just hop on over to the website wyomingmy307 at blogspot.com. So back to place names and their origins, and our dot on the map for today I told you in episode one a little bit about the history of Grable and how it got its name. Here in the Bighorn Mountains, there's a campground called Dead Swede that I really need to figure out the backstory on. But today's dot on the map is Matitsee, Wyoming. It's on Crow and Cheyenne ancestral land and it was named after Matitsi Creek, which is Shoshone for meeting place, or place of rest. In the Shoshone language, if the distance was far, the pronunciation of the place name, the syllables were drawn out. If it was close by, the syllables were said quickly. I found that so interesting and a language element that I've never thought about, but that sounds really handy. So what's there to do in Matitsi, Wyoming? I have a picture of Main Street Matitsi posted on the website, and you will see that it has boardwalks instead of concrete sidewalks. So Matitsi definitely gives you those Old West feels. I recommend visiting the Matitse Museum. Three exhibits there really stood out to me. One was on the black-footed ferrets, They were thought to be extinct, and then they were found on a ranch just outside of Metizi. They've since been successfully bred in captivity and successfully reintroduced into the wild. Another exhibit I really liked was on the photographer Charles Belden. He lived and worked nearby on the Pitchfork Ranch. His photos, along with western novels and cowboy music and western movies, They helped create our romanticized stereotype of the Western settler experience. The third really outstanding exhibit at the museum is on the Western mercantile or general store. It made me realize how much commerce has changed since Grandma's time. The artifacts there tell the story of the whole process that a mercantile would go through from wholesale ordering providing credit, invoicing, marketing, and display of merchandise. I thought it was very interesting, and I think that anyone who's in the retail industry today would find it fascinating. There's actually a second museum down the block in an old bank building, and it's worth a visit too. Again, seeing the bank museum, it really struck me how much banking has changed since grandma's times. The old artifacts of banking whether it's the big, huge ledger books or the ornately painted safes are just gorgeous. And I learned that banks each printed their own money in those days, their own paper money. You can see an actual $10 bill from the First National Bank of Matizzi. Before you leave town, you must visit the Matizzi Chocolatier. It's just a few doors down from the museum, and there you will find the most amazing artisan chocolates. They're handmade daily by the chocolatier himself, Tim Kellogg. He makes them with all organic ingredients without any preservatives and runs a very green operation. But most importantly, they are so good. Now for Wyoming wildlife. I was tempted to pick the black-footed ferret because of the connection to Matitsi, but today's Wyoming wildlife is another fascinating and unbelievably cute animal. In keeping with today's theme, it's an animal with an interesting name, and it's the pika, or should we be pronouncing it pika? Pikas are small, rabbit-like animals that live at a very, very specific altitude and temperature. They're found here in the Mountain West, but also throughout the world, for example, in Siberia and also in Japan. If you've ever seen the anime character Pikachu, that's who it's named after, you get an idea of how adorable these little guys are and also a clue into the origin of the name. The word Pika is from the Tungus language, where it's pronounced Pika, as in Pikachu. Tungus is a family of languages spoken in Siberia and Manchuria, and like the Pika, Tungusic languages are fragile and dwindling. So that's the linguistic background. What about the critter? As I mentioned, Pika live in a very specific mountain climate. They're actually a relic of the last ice age. They thrive in that very specific and cold climate. They live in rocky slides. A great place to see them is on the walk up to the Medicine Wheel in the Bighorn Mountains. This is a place I definitely need to tell you about someday. Even in this hostile, cold environment, pika do not hibernate. Instead, they busy themselves all summer collecting grasses, they dry them out in little piles, and store them for the winter months. High up in the mountains where they live, average temperatures are rising at an even faster rate than in other ecosystems. The pika's fate is tied to snowpack and ice, which are unfortunately dwindling faster every year. They are considered a canary in the coal mine for climate change. I have a great article about them linked in the show notes. Now for Out of the Box. This segment focuses on the edges of our state, spotlighting a community you may come through if you drive to Wyoming. I want to tell you a little bit about Red Lodge, Montana. For the Crow Indians, Red Lodge was a place of worship and hunting. While there they painted their council teepee with red clay and folklore indicates that this tradition gave the place its name. Settlers encroached on these native people's land and built homesteads and the town was founded in 1884. This was just a short time after the Rocky Fork Coal Company established mining operations. This enterprise quickly attracted thousands of European immigrants and then brought in the railroad. I've mentioned before that I like cemeteries, and the one in Red Lodge does not disappoint. You really get a sense of the diversity of immigrants that came here to work, just from the names on the headstones. Now, for a town of under 3,000 residents, today it has a vibrant downtown. It's full of galleries, restaurants, and shops. If you decide to spend the night in Red Lodge, I recommend the Pollard Hotel. Now, when I went, it was just a day trip, and I really enjoyed having a very nice lunch at the restaurant there. It made me want to come back for more and stay at the Pollard. Since Grant is my first guest who's not from or in Wyoming, today I decided to share my own answers to the closing questions that I usually ask my guests. What is something people driving through Wyoming may not realize? I don't think people realize when they look on the map and they see little blank spaces between the towns that there's just nothing out there. No gas station, no Walmart, no grocery store. Just big, beautiful, wide-open spaces full of nature. What's the hardest thing about living in Wyoming? The hardest thing for me is being far away from my daughters and my new baby granddaughter. Although one of my girls just moved to Cheyenne, so I'm excited to have her close by. Another thing I was a little worried about before moving here was not having access to the variety of foods and restaurants that I was used to in the big city. Well, it turns out I just had to look a little harder and be willing to drive a little further to get everything I need. Next, I need to perfect making pho and bibimbap because I love Vietnamese and Korean food. What do I love most about Wyoming? That's easy. The peace and quiet the immediate access to nature, and the friends I've made here. They're authentic and generous, and I love being the home base for my extended family who often comes to visit. So that closes the gate on another episode. Thank you so much to Grant Barrett for the wonderful insight into Words of Wyoming. If you don't already, you must listen to Away with Words. He co hosts with Martha Barnett on National Public Radio, but you can also binge listen to them online wherever you listen to podcasts. Finally, check out the website, WyomingMy307.blogspot.com. There you can find links to the museums, places, and reference information for what was covered today and every episode. If you have questions or suggestions, email me, wyomingmy307 at gmail.com. See you on Instagram at wyomingmy307, all one word. Happy trails to you. Until we meet again.